0: Thank you, Zane. Good morning. This is our, our third sermon this morning in our series as going through the book of Ephesians. I hope that all of you have had a chance to pick up the booklet. Um, if you haven't, I think we still have a few copies left and we can always run more. Um, but that booklet is just designed to keep you in Ephesians on a daily basis, just for five or ten minutes every day to think back, On what we covered the week before and look ahead to the following week. Um, Today, we're looking at this passage, which is the second half of chapter one of the book of Ephesians. I know uh, that a lot of people in this room are involved in education as teachers or professors or administrators or or were in the past. When I was in college, I was a tutor at the University Writing Center. So I, I helped students with their writing, and I eventually taught freshman composition for a number of years. And uh, I think a lot of you could testify that when you teach developmental writing, you see some pretty hairy things uh, on student papers. My, one of my favorite grammatical errors, you, we all have favorite grammatical errors, right? That's a thing? Yeah, okay. One of my favorite grammatical errors is the run-on sentence. Do you know how the run-on sentence works? You start off talking about one thing, and you belabor the point, and you cover it every which way, and then suddenly you switch to the next topic. And as you move on in that direction, you think you're coming to a close, but you get new life, and you veer off, and on and on, right? Um, The reason I bring up the run-on sentence is because it can really feel like Paul writes that way when you read Ephesians. Uh, You know, it's... It's always the side comments and, and going this way and coming back. There's, there's, there's more commas per page in Paul's writing than you find anywhere, I think. Um, and it can sometimes, in fact, in the original Greek, you know, Paul wrote in Greek. In the original Greek, our entire passage today is one long sentence. So now in the Greek language, you can do that a little bit easier than you can in English. But still, that's how Paul, Paul writes. It's a, a run on theological sentence. Um, But because of that, I think we can get lost. It it can be hard to kind of keep in mind what the real driving force of of what Paul is saying is. And so this is what Paul is saying in the passage today. He's saying, I'm praying for you so that God would open your, your mind, that God would give you understanding so that you would know his power, which is for you. That power raised Jesus from the dead, and that power has placed all things under Jesus' rule for the sake of his church. Did you get that? I'm praying for you so that God would give you understanding, so that you would know his power, which is for you. That power raised Jesus from the dead and placed all things under Jesus' rule for the sake of building his church. And I just want to walk through that passage from Paul with you today. Will you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Paul is praying for those to whom he's writing the letter, right? Paul is praying for the Ephesians, for people who live... Christians who lived in the city of Ephesus, but also in surrounding cities in that area. Uh, scholars think this letter was probably passed around uh, from church to church and was designed that way. So Paul is praying for the Ephesians um, and the Ephesians, they were Christians who were facing some difficulties and challenges in their life. They they were living at a time when the communities and the people around them were growing increasingly nervous and suspicious about this faith that the early Christians were practicing. They were living in an empire, the Roman Empire, that was becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. And they were living at a time in which it seemed like their whole world was defined by forces and powers that they had little or no control over. That's the audience to which Paul is writing this message does that sound familiar maybe ring a ring a bell with you i think that we find ourselves in a similar situation and paul prays for these christians now when we or someone we love is facing challenging circumstances i think our first tendency is usually to pray for those circumstances pray that they change right we want the circumstances to be different and that that's a good prayer But Paul doesn't pray that way. Paul always goes to the heart of the issue. Paul always prays for the the root of things. So let's look together at verse 17. What is Paul's prayer? Paul prays that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know What know what is the hope to which he has called you? What Paul prays for these Ephesians is he prays for knowledge. He says, "I want, I pray that you would know something. I pray that you would understand something. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened." For the for us, the heart is your feelings, right? That's not so for the ancients. For the for the Greek and Jewish culture in which Paul was a part, the heart was the core of the person. Your, your feelings were in your bowels, and your, uh, but the heart was where your intellect and your will, your courage, uh, uh, reasoning was in your heart. So he says, I pray that the, the, the eyes of your heart would be opened. Now, that might not be the first thing we think those early Christians need is knowledge, right? But knowledge is very important to Paul's whole way of thinking about what the Christian life is all about. It's very important to Jesus, too. There's this phenomenal passage in John chapter 17 where Jesus where Jesus actually defines eternal life. And he's praying for his disciples in John chapter 17. And he says, and this is eternal life that they would know the, uh, the uh, this only God, know the true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So Jesus says that eternal life is knowledge. It's knowing something. So, of course, the question is, well, what what is knowledge in this case, right? What is meant by knowing or knowledge? If you look at your um, order of worship, you'll notice that we're in a section of the liturgy uh, that is titled God sanctifies us by his word. That idea of being sanctified by God's word also comes from John 17, a few verses later. Jesus is still praying. And Jesus says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to make holy, right? So Jesus is saying that it's truth that makes us holy. So again, truth or knowledge is fundamentally important. But of course, the question, as Pilate famously said, what is truth? Now, I think that in our contemporary American context, we tend to think that truth is something like correct information, right? So, for example, in astronomy, we say that the Earth is 93 million miles from the sun, give or take, right? That is correct information, so that's knowledge, that's truth. Or in uh, geometry, we say A squared plus B squared equals C squared, right? Correct information, that's knowledge, that's truth. Or we could go back to the first example and say in English grammar, if you have two independent clauses, you gotta join them with a coordinating conjunction. Otherwise, you've got yourself a run-on sentence, right? So I noticed different smiles depending on which example I mentioned there. Um, But, uh, and I guess the polymath laughed at everything, but that's correct information. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what Paul is talking about when it comes to truth. Can correct information make anyone holy? (laughs) Is correct information eternal life? No. The Greek word for truth is aletheia. It's kind of a beautiful word, actually, aletheia. Um, It has two parts. The first part is A, the first letter, uh, and it it means not. It's just like in English. Atypical means not typical, right? So it's a privative. The second um, part comes from the Greek verb uh, lontano lanthano means to cover something over lanthano means to close something off or to make something invisible and so when you put those two things together the greek idea of truth is to uncover something to uh, discover we might say to disclose the greek idea of truth is that something is revealed I think we, we use truth in this sense when we say uh, that someone spoke truth into my life. Have you ever heard that phrase? Spoke truth into my life. What do you mean? You know, What you mean is that they said something and all at once everything was revealed, right? All at once everything was disclosed. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about. I've got to figure out where I am in my notes. So, So this is, uh, this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Paul prays that something would be revealed, right? He prays that they would have knowledge, they would have understanding, that they would have an experience with truth. He says the words he uses are a spirit of revelation, right? We need there to be a revelation. We need to pull back the curtain and see the reality that lies behind. The invisible reality that lies behind the visible appearance of chaos in the world that those first century Christians were dealing with. Now, what is that reality? For Paul, that reality is two things. It's the reality of God's great power and the fact that that power is for us. This is what Paul says. Look at verse 19 with me. In verse 19, Paul says, uh, that he's praying that what would be revealed is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. You notice all the words there that seem big, the immeasurable greatness, power, might, all this sort of stuff in in the original Greek. In this verse, Paul actually uses four different words for power in one verse four, like four different synonyms for power. If if I were to do a little sort of translation of it, I might say something like this: "And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power for us who believe, according to the powerfulness of His powerful power?" Right? That it's not going to win any awards for translation, but that that's that's the kind of uh, idea that Paul is trying to emphasize here. The Christians living in in Ephesus and the Christians living throughout that area of the world in the first century, were living at a time when there were many different competing ideas about power, many different competing entities that were claiming power. In a metropolitan city like Ephesus, there would have been dozens of gods and goddesses that were being worshipped publicly, and hundreds or even thousands of private divinities that would have been worshipped in individual households, each with their competing claim of power of course lurking behind all of that would have been the roman empire which with its claim to have the real power over human life and human existence the early christians also lived at a time when that there were competing claims from dark powers you know the the first century was a time of, of magical curses of magical incantations of demonic powers in fact when, uh, when Paul says here in verse 21, he talks about rulers and authorities and powers and dominions. You remember that part of the passage. That was the, the, those are the four categories of, of uh, the forces of evil in Jewish theology. So Paul's audience would have immediately you know, heard what he was saying there and, and connected the dots. So these early Christians were living with these different competing claims of power. Now, we sometimes can write off uh, first century folk as being superstitious, but we too live at a time when there are many different competing claims of power. We live at a time of religious pluralism, for example, where those around us sometimes think that uh, Judaism and Islam and the various pagan religions of the world and Christianity all have their own kind of legitimate claim to power, right? We live at a time in which religious leaders of all stripes, including those who go under the banner of Christ, promise all kinds of wonderful-sounding powers to their adherents, the power to uh, become rich and, and gain prosperity, or the power to be able to do miracles, or whatever the case is, as long as they'll follow that leader. We live at a time in which social movements and political movements claim spiritual power, if you follow this social movement and you work on its behalf, your life will have meaning, and we will eventually usher in heaven on earth. We, we also live at a time of dark powers, don't we? You know, For example, I think many of us are concerned about shadowy corporations. Maybe the list is different for each one of us. Maybe it's Facebook or Amazon or ExxonMobil or whoever it is. But we're concerned that those corporations wield power and that they leave in their wake not only material destruction, but also spiritual desolation as well. I think, whatever your political uh, sympathies, you know, are, I think that a lot of us are concerned that those who wield political power do so not for the sake of the common good, but do so in a way that is detrimental to us and to our children. So we too live at a time in which there are all these conflicting ideas about power, And in the midst of all of this, Paul wants to say, wants to emphasize this truth, that God is the greatest power. And in fact, God is the only universal power. God has given that power to Jesus Christ, and God has placed Jesus Christ above all things. Paul really wants us to get that point. Listen to the passage again and hear how he emphasizes this again and again, beginning in verse 20. The power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Yeah? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And... Above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things. So Paul is really coming down on this point about the power of God as it has been given to and is carried out by Jesus Christ. The risen Jesus is the head over everything that exists. That is the truth that Paul is praying that those first century Christians would see. That's the revelation. That's what reveals the way that the way the true contours of our life and our place in the world that Jesus Christ is the head over all things. Head head means authority, right? Head means authority and it means active rule. Jesus Christ is the head over all of human history, over every human being, over every society. Jesus Christ is the head of nature and of natural occurrences, of climate change, of tornadoes. Jesus Christ is the head of the worlds of business, the world of sports, the world of health care, the world of education. Jesus Christ is the head of every government. Jesus Christ is the head of every leader. Jesus Christ is the head of every social movement. Jesus Christ is the head of social media, believe it or not. Jesus Christ is the head of the internet, of cell phones. Jesus Christ is the ruler over galaxies, over solar systems, over stars, over planets, over Molecules, over atoms, over subatomic particles, Jesus Christ is the ruler of all things. The conscious, active, authoritative ruler over all. But Paul doesn't stop there. What's Jesus up to? Paul asks as he's ruling all things. What's Jesus' purpose? What's Jesus' agenda as ruler? What is Jesus accomplishing in his rule over all things? And we get the answer to that in verse 22. And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things for the church. For the sake of the church. In, in his rule and governing over all things in heaven and on earth, What Jesus is up to is Jesus is building his church. That is the truth that Paul wants his readers to understand. That's the truth that Paul is praying that God will reveal to him. The invisible reality behind the visible appearance of chaos and difficulty in the world is that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things for the sake of his church. Now, for some of you, it's very difficult to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Some of you look at things that are going on in this world, and you look at things that are going on in your own life, and you say, Jesus cannot possibly be Lord of that. For others of you, it's hard to understand that Jesus' power could be for us. You say, fine, God's in control of everything, but what does that have to do with me? I mean, I couldn't possibly be a significant part of that plan. Yeah. Paul does not say that it's easy to grasp this truth. In fact, that's why he's, he prays that God would reveal it, right? Paul does not say, come on, connect the dots. Get it, you know, what's your problem? Paul says, I, God, reveal this truth. But I, I want you to imagine for a minute, what would it be like if we really understood this? just imagining, if we really, if you could really get this idea in your bones that Jesus Christ is the, is the head over all things for the sake of his church. When you look at your news feed on your phone, for example, or uh, open your newspaper, or, you know, if you watch news on TV, whatever it is, right? You see that news feed on your phone, and for each and every headline, as you read that, You said, Jesus Christ is head over this. And in some way that I probably don't understand, in the midst of this, Jesus Christ is building his church. That would change everything. That's truth. That reveals. That discloses. Suddenly everything is going to be cast in a different light, isn't it? Now, the eyes of our hearts would have to be pretty wide open to think that way all the time. But I wonder this morning if there isn't some area of your life in which you think, you know what? I underestimate in this area of my life that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. What would we do if we really had that truth at the forefront of our minds. In, in chapter 4, which we'll get to later on down the road, Paul says this, live in a manner that is worthy of that truth. The truth is that Jesus Christ is head over all things and his number one priority is to build his church for his glory. And so I ask you this morning, what is your priority? Maybe your priority uh, has to do with pride, which means that your priority is yourself. Maybe uh, your tendency is towards idolatry, which means your priority is something else. Sometimes we we prioritize things other than God because we are attracted to them, we're dazzled by them. Other times, we prioritize things other than God because we're afraid of them, because we're trying to run away from them or avoid them. Or is your priority the priority of Jesus Christ, that above all, you are focused on the headship of Christ and of the church that he is building for himself? So, this morning, when it comes to that area of your life, that you might be thinking, you know what? In this area of my life, I think maybe, maybe my priorities are somewhere else than Christ and his church. Uh, I would encourage you today to say, Lord, I want to place that area of my life under the lordship of Jesus Christ and surrender it to him. Now, there's one more important point to add to this mix which is that we can't do this ourselves, right? Paul, Paul does not say, uh, come on, open the eyes of your heart. Good goodness. Get it together, right? Paul says, I pray that God would open the eyes of your heart. If, if you're listening to this scripture today and there's something in here that resonates with you, I want to encourage you that that is the work of the Holy Spirit making the word of God effective in your life. That's not something that you can do. That's not something that I can do. That's not something that anyone else can do. We need God to open our eyes. We need God to give us understanding, to reveal his truth. That's grace, right? That's God's initiative in our life. So let's, let's end this morning by simply asking God to reveal his truth to us. Will you pray with me? Great and powerful God, you have made the risen Christ to be Lord of all things. Nothing can stand against the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet we know that we cannot understand the reality of your rule unless you first open our eyes. So be thou our vision, O Lord of our lives. Let Nothing else count unless it be you and you only. May you and you only be first in our hearts. We ask this through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.